welcome to everyone this morning, and especially if you are a guest today, we want to welcome you. If you're watching us online this morning, we welcome you, pray that you're blessed by this service. And I got to tell you, this is a wonderful day. It is absolutely fantastic. To see the precious folks from Langdon Green. We have missed them so much. Oh my goodness. As they started walking in, I recognized them walking in this morning. My, my heart leapt within me. We have missed you so much oh my goodness praise God amen well a couple of days ago I thought I knew what I was preaching this morning and all that started changing yesterday I I, I don't most of you know this, if you're a guest, maybe, and I, I, there's, there's not a sermon. Well, there is a sermon book. That's, that's the sermon book. <laughs> there, there's, there, there are, there's websites where you can get sermons. That's not how I was taught to get mine. And so mine come from the Word of God. There may be different things that inspire it, but, but, it's the source, and um, I don't I don't arbitrarily pick. I do my very best to find out what the Lord would have me to say, and I am quite sure that in thirty years of preaching now, over thirty, that I have not gotten it right every time. But that's the goal, and so. Um, I, even as I've stood on this platform this morning, I, I have wrestled with this, and I'm just going to hope and pray that this is, in fact, what the Lord wants me to minister here this morning. And I will say this, and this is pretty much the case with any message. There are, there are varying ways, and I mean this in a very positive context, can actually do this negatively as well, but there are varying ways or various ways that one single message can apply to different people. It's one of the things that's so awesome about God. One, one word can go forth, and if you if you got an open heart and mind, God can find something in the course of that to speak to you. So I'm going to tell you, I think there's probably a variety of ways that perhaps this can apply. Uh, there, there is a couple of primary ways that is my burden this morning with this message. But hopefully some way or the other, God will speak to you. I do want to also mention, we want to welcome Brother Charlin's mom and dad. They just moved to the States. We are thrilled to have them. Amen. We have been blessed to have Brother Charlin a part of us. We're happy that they're here now as well. Amen. 
I'm going to start differently this morning than normal. Normally, we read a text, a scripture to start. I promise you I will get to some scriptures in a few moments. There's a term called family of origin. I'm going to read to you from a counseling website. Says this family of origin refers to the family you grew up in as opposed to the people you live with now and includes your siblings and parents. It can include a grandparent or other relative or step parents and step siblings who lived with you during any part of your childhood. The members of your of our family of origin and our relationships with them. And the family as a whole profoundly influence who we become. Family of origin is the place we learn to be who we are for better or worse. What are family of origin issues? In our family of origin, we learn how to communicate, interact, deal with our emotions, and get our needs met. We also learn most of our beliefs and values from our parents. We derive our sense of self, our concept of who we are from our family upbringing. If we were loved and felt safe most of the time, then we develop a strong and stable sense of self. If safety and love were generally unavailable, then our sense of self can be fractured and unstable. I don't think what I read first said it, so I will just point it out. In this concept of your family of origin, it's not, it's not necessarily your biological family. It's your family that you were raised with. That could have been an adoptive family. That could have been other relatives that raised you or someone else. As the second part of that said, our, our family of origin can have a lot of impact on our lives. It In a lot of ways, it sets the course for our lives. We have a tendency to view people's potential in life based on their family of origin, where they grow up, who they grow up with. If someone is born into a family that's got money and means, we have higher expectations that the children born in that family are going to repeat that. They're going to get an education. They're going to find some kind of career to be successful and, and continue. If someone is born into a, uh, a, a situation of poverty, uh, we, we, we basically ex- don't expect a whole lot from them and we celebrate the stories of those who make their way out of circumstances that were viewed as a limitation or not very ideal. And I guess really in the context of this message today, the focus is more so when you look at a situation that there are very positive expectations because of that situation. I'm actually trying not to give any sort of specific examples because I feel like in doing that it almost kind of narrows down the focus and I don't want some of you to just because of one example to tune out 
what the Lord may want to say to you this morning. When, when, when the environment we are in, when the environment we are raised in, and I will go ahead and throw this out there because this is a part of the burden that I feel for somebody today. When the church environment we may be a part of doesn't quite meet reasonable expectations. I'm not talking about unrealistic. If, you, if you're yet to get married and you think you're going to get married and have the perfect marriage without any issues or struggles, you, you are foolish. I don't know how else to say it. You're foolish. In fact, I don't really know that you can truly be married without having some conflict from time to time. Having some struggles that you have, that's all a part of the process. That's what, that's what makes a relationship strong. When you're, when you're dating and perhaps really even in engagement, for the most part, you always can put on your best face. Example I think is very relevant and most of us can relate to when you're when you're you know when you're dating it's you where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care where do you want to go. You do that for about thirty minutes and then finally somebody says, Well, how about we go here? Okay, sure. After you say I do, it starts the same. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. No, really, where do you want to go? I don't care. No, where do you want to go? You do that, and then you finally say, well, let's go here. I don't want to go there. You just told me you don't care. You do care. If you don't have a suggestion of where to go, can you please just go ahead and let me know where we're not going? Then we can get that one off the table. My wife never saw my bedhead until after we got married. I didn't ever know her hair was ever out of place until after we got married. I didn't... I'll say it, reverse that. She didn't know. She didn't know I had bad breath in the mornings. Because we can, we can control that. We can suppress. But let me tell you something. When you are living together and, and, and you're spending all kinds of time together, you, if you're still faking it, you're, you're just a fake. So there, there, there are no... There are no perfect environments, even though if we're not careful, we can set unrealistic expectations for things. But I, I'm not really preaching to you this morning about unrealistic expectations. In fact, my, 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 the, 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 the burden this morning is for those of you who have had very realistic, very valid expectations... But it hasn't quite gone that way. There's a story in Scripture that to me demonstrates 
one of those scenarios where somebody was born in the absolute right environment. They were born into the circumstances that they should have expectations for a wonderful life. You can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. And when Saul's son, Saul, was the king of Israel at this time, you don't get any higher than the king. You don't get any better off than the king. The king doesn't know what it means to go hungry. The king doesn't know what it means to wear out clothes, to to deal with lack. The king has it all. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron. His hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Bana. And the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimmon and whoever else. And the... Barathites fled to Gidim and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, son Saul. Jonathan, son Saul. If my study of scripture is correct, Jonathan was Saul's eldest son. And due to the fact that Jonathan was Saul's eldest son, it was... Reasonable to expect that Jonathan would then be the next king at whatever point his dad was no longer around. So you got Saul that's the king and then you got Jonathan the king's son who would be the heir apparent to the throne. But then Jonathan had a son. And you would think that son as the grandson of the king, as the son of the heir to the throne, is going to have an amazing life. He's going to grow up with the best there is. He's he's going to grow up and eat the best of foods, wear the finest of clothes, be educated by the best of teachers because his grandfather's the king and his dad is going to be the king and so life should be pretty good for this young man. And it started that way. The rest of verse 4 says this, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on his feet He didn't start off that way. He wasn't born lame. He wasn't born unable to walk. He was born able to do that. He was born healthy and had the ability to do, to walk. But when he was five years old, when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel and His nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. 
It was in the process of someone trying to help him in trying to save his life. It was in that process that he was dropped and then became lame. Can I tell you that sometimes in the church, even in someone's efforts to help you, you're going to get hurt. Even in our best attempts, somebody's going to hurt you. You're going to get wounded. You're going to get disappointed. There was no ill intent here. In fact, it was quite the opposite. The goal was the king has died. The king's son has died. And this is a member of that family. And so in an effort to preserve his life, I'm going to run away with him. And in that process, she drops him. From that day on, he's lame. He can't walk. (laughs) Not only is he now lame, can't walk, his dad is gone. His grandfather is gone. Everything that was the foundation, the basis for him to have hope for a good life has all been pulled out from under him. Oh, hallelujah. Man, two Sundays ago seems like decades ago. I hope that's not my one good one for the year. Did you know that it's possible to go to the hospital for one reason and leave with another issue? This is off the patient care website. It says this, healthcare acquired infections. HAI summary. HAIs, what they are. Healthcare acquired infections. Also, and I, I listened to Webster's pronounce this on my computer 20 times this morning, and I'm probably going to still mess it up. So forgive me. Healthcare acquired infections, also known as nosocomial infections, are infections that patients get while receiving treatment for medical or surgical conditions. HAIs occur in all settings of care, including hospitals, surgical centers ambulatory clinics and long-term care facilities such as nursing homes and rehabilitation facilities. Who's at risk? All hospitalized patients are susceptible to contracting a nosocomial infection. Some patients are at greater risk than others. Young children, the elderly, and persons with compromised immune systems are more likely to get an infection. Other risk factors are long hospital stays, the use of indwelling catheters, failure of healthcare workers to wash their hands, and overuse of antibiotics. Listen to this. This, this is mind-boggling. In American hospitals alone, 
in American hospitals, not third world countries. In American hospitals alone, the Centers for Disease Control estimates that HAIs account for an estimated 1.7 million infections. And 99,000 associated deaths each year. That's those that went for one reason. They went to get care for one reason. This is not a bashing of the health care system today. So we got a few health care folks. Don't, don't get mad at me. They went for one reason, one purpose, and in the course of that being dealt with, walked away with another issue. You see, there may be, oh Lord, there may be, Mr. Angie said at the beginning, and I hope we are. I hope we, if we're not, we're striving to be. We want to be the friendliest church in town. I hope we're, I, we, we may not be it, but that's, that's the goal. But just because we're the friendliest church in town, just because we may know how to pray for you when you got a need and just because when we pray for your need, God very well may touch you and just because we may know how to do certain things doesn't mean that if you're not careful in the right place where there's good intentions, negative things can still happen. In the line of duty, whether in the military or in a, serving on a police force or similar situations, there are injuries and even deaths that can occur from friendly fire. See, the problem is if we don't somehow live with a realistic expectation and understanding, the enemy will find the enemy will find something to drive you away from the house of God and from the people of God. No, it may not have been God that did the thing to you. It may not have been God that hurt you. But God, the enemy will use what the church did to drive you away from God. If there's any place you ought to be safe, if there's any place you ought to feel safe, it ought to be in church. If there's any place you should live without fear of being mistreated and, 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 and abused and talked about, it, it should be church. The only problem is this. Church is made up of human beings. There's only one that's perfect, and it's not me, and it's not you. Therefore, the church is not perfect. God is perfect, but the church is not perfect. And just in case you mishear me, I'm not here today preaching excuses for the church. That's not the point. But the point is, if we're not careful, when we are in an environment where things shouldn't happen, 
and they do happen. If we don't learn how to deal with them, it's going to lead to even greater issues and problems in our lives. I'm just going to be plain with you this morning, not that I ever try to be anything less. A kid that's born in church, to parents that are in church, it's reasonable that that child should never have to experience divorce. Maybe the norm out there, maybe what happens, but it is, it is a reasonable expectation that if you are born in the church, if you're born in the kingdom of God, your parents are saved or in the process of being, it is a reasonable expectation. You have the right to expect that. You're born to a family in the church and your parents have the Holy Ghost. They're baptized in Jesus' name or supposedly trying to walk with God. You, There are some expectations you should have. Reasonable expectations. There are some things that you as a child of God and a child of a saved person should not have to deal with. That is reasonable to expect. But what do you do when the reasonable expectations are not met? What do you do when you are in an environment where you have every right to expect some positive, wonderful things and those things don't happen? There's a term, I don't know who coined the term, but it's called church hurt. Church hurt. There's people that don't want anything to do with religion anymore because of church hurt. Because human beings disappointed them. Human beings missed. Human beings, supposed saved folks. So they justify disconnecting from church, the body of Christ, and they justify uh, even even getting rid of any kind of trust and faith in God because of what some person did to them. See, if you can't somehow make up your mind that humans are not Him, that he, he is God. And as God, He is love. And as God, He is perfect. But it doesn't mean that you and I are or will ever be perfect. And the enemy is very adept at finding issues in the body to cause people to be separated from the body. Not making up their minds that, you know what, I, if people lose their mind, if people act stupid, do stupid stuff, I'm not going to put on him what is that from a human being. I'm not going to judge him by what someone else does who is not perfect. 
Again, I, I probably will say it more than this time, but maybe this will be the last one. This message this morning is not intended to be a message of justification for our faults and our failures. Not at all. We should not be content. We should never be satisfied. No matter how well we're doing, we should always be striving for more, to continue to grow, to be more loving, to be more friendly. We should always be striving for that. But somehow you've got to make up your mind that if my environment that I had every right to expect one thing does not go that way, if if my dreams and desires and ambitions that were based on a reasonable foundation, if they don't work out because of the way life goes or what people do, I'm still going to hold to God's unchanging hand. I'm still going to hold on to the fact that while people may be imperfect, while human beings, including the guy with the microphone, may be imperfect. This book is still perfect. And the God of this book is still perfect. And the God of this book never fails, never lets me down, never mistreats me. No, that does not mean he does everything the way I want him to do it. It doesn't mean he answers every prayer the way I ask him to pray it. But the scripture says, if you and I being evil, know how to give good gifts how much more does the heavenly father and then it says would would he withhold good things from you it isn't it amazing that when God withholds something from us that we want we get angry with God we start questioning God we start accusing God of being not faithful but if I believe this book and what this book says then what I must believe is if God did not give me something I wanted that I thought was good then and for some reason God recognized if I did that while you may think it would be for good it's not for good and so he withholds no good thing I don't know how many years have passed from 2nd Samuel Four to Second Samuel nine. It was enough time that Mephibosheth now had a son of his own. He was an adult now. So let's just say fifteen, maybe twenty years. Somebody please hear me today. I don't know. I can only imagine. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But I can imagine and I think for the most part I feel pretty confident that these are reasonable things to assume. That basically from that day when Mephibosheth's father and grandfather died and the nurse drops him and he's now crippled. I think it would be pretty safe to assume that from that point on, life was pretty miserable for Mephibosheth. Sometimes one of the greatest challenges we have to overcome is the memories of what we had. 
and the expectations of what we had, the expectations we had based on what we had. Sometimes it's not really even the circumstances we're in as much as it is we never thought we would be here because not a person in this place today but if you've been walking with God for a reasonable amount of time there's no way there's a person in this place that couldn't say it hasn't all gone the way I expected You got saved, you got the Holy Ghost, you were flying. I, I, I heard, a, I was listening to a message Friday as I was driving back from youth camp. And what a, I've always tried, I just, I think I referenced this verse recently, but I've always tried to wrap my brain around it and understand it and don't know if I've ever fully got it, but this really helped. And that was, that's the verse that says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And then it says, they will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. That really kind of is in a reverse order. I mean, for you and I, it would seem like walking would come first, running would come next, and then flying if we had the ability to fly. But the prophet says, fly, run, walk. And the preacher explained it this way, when you got the Holy Ghost, you were flying high. You got the Holy Ghost, man, you were on cloud nine. You, I, you, you were just so excited. You knew your sins had been washed away, and, and, and you knew God would, had given you the most precious gift. You were just, you were soaring. And then that kind of wore off, wore off, but you were still running pretty good. But then eventually all of that wore off, and now it's down to whether or not you're just going to keep walking. See, when all of that wears off, when all of the excitement, when the honeymoon is over, and you get down to reality, what do you do then? What do you do when you reach the point that you come to church, you're used to coming to church, when, and every time you come to church, man, you got goosebumps on your goosebumps, whatever that means. That's just what I've heard all my life. You're used to coming to church, and, and almost the second you put a hand up in the air, it's like putting a, it's like putting a, 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 knife, a metal knife in a, an electrical socket. Man, you're just plugged in. You just got it. You feel it. Some of you actually shake. I think we've gotten, this is a sidebar, I think we've gotten a little bit too dick. We need some fresh shakers at Antioch. It's just nothing like every now and then watching somebody get plugged in, and especially if it's a lady with her hair up, and bobby pins start shooting out like darts, man. You better get out of the way. I got a question. Anybody willing to be honest enough this morning? You've been around here a little while. Anybody be willing to be transparent enough this morning to say, you know what, Brother Wright, I've been here for an hour and 15 minutes now. And I got to tell you, I just ain't felt a whole lot. One honest, up, two honest people, three peer pressure. Now more of you being honest. (laughs) You you know, the couple of the hands that I just saw go up. 
Not people that just started a walk with God last week. It's not people that just got born again two weeks ago. People that have been doing this a while. What do you do when you start into that season? (laughs) When you're so used to always feeling, always getting, and then it's like he just turns it all off. And your expectations are now being greatly disappointed. What, What do you do then? Can I tell you today, I know this verse would really probably be used, no probably to it, it's normally used in a different context than this, but if I could use it in the context of this message this morning, the scripture says that God will not forget your labor of love. We, we use that, and I think the primary context of that has to do with ministry and working in the kingdom of God. And if you work in ministry and you do things and you give to others and you minister to others, God will not forget that. And, I, and obviously that's true. But, but in the context of this morning, when you face that moment like Mephibosheth, when your hopes and dreams and your, your again, your reasonable expectations are shattered And now you're in that season like he's in where life that was great and wonderful has completely fallen apart. Can I tell you today that God still knows exactly where you are. So again, the scripture doesn't tell us. I think we could safely assume 15 to 20 years between 2 Samuel 4 and now 2 Samuel 9, verse number 1, David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba, and when they had called unto him, unto him, un, called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan yet hath, a, hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. You know what? He became defined by the tragedy. Oh, Jesus, I, I don't, I, I wish I could tell you I felt something. I don't really feel anything, but I do believe the Holy Ghost is trying to talk to somebody this morning. He became, he was no longer Saul's grandson. He was no longer Jonathan's son, no longer a part of the royal family, but now he is referred to as the one who is lame on his, he is defined now by the mistakes and the failures of his past, but oh, Oh, watch the rest of the story. 
And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear. Or not. I don't think it's a coincidence that David says, fear not. Because I think somehow David recognized in Mephibosheth, you've been through tragedy. Your life has been defined by tragedy. And you are here thinking that this is just going to be one more tragedy on top of the others. And so you've approached me and the honoring me is not necessarily out of reverence and respect. It is out of fear as to what is going to happen next what's going to be the next issue in my life what's going to be the next thing that goes wrong what's going to be the next dream that gets dashed what's what's going to be the next expectation that doesn't fit the way I thought it was going to go but David says don't be afraid Mephibosheth because I'm going to show you great I'm going to show you the kindness I'm going to show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. I'm not going to take time to read it. If you read the rest of chapter 9, he didn't just give him a seat at his table. He restored possessions. He restored land He gave back to Mephibosheth land that belonged to his father. And in those days and times, the the importance of that was agriculture. And and, what good is land? What good is all kinds of land for somebody that's lame on their feet? And so David went beyond not just restoring him the land, but he also then gave him servants to take care of all of it. And after all of that, as he says here, he reiterates at the end of the chapter, and he comes back and says, I'm going to give Mephibosheth servants to take care of all of his land. They're going to do all the work for him, but he's going to sit at my table regularly. He's not even going to be benefited by all of that. I'm going to give him another honor. So for 15 to 20 years, Mephibosheth more than likely lived, Brother Barr, in misery. Lived under the shadow of what was and what should have been. I've sat in my office with people that are adults now, born and raised in church that again have had to go through things that they should never have had to gone through. Not that it's okay for the world, not that it's acceptable, but it's more understandable for people that don't have God and for people who have not made up their minds that they are living by this book. But when you're in this environment and people are supposed to be submitted to God and His Word. There are things you should never have to go through. And the enemy is absolutely 
waiting for when that happens. And He's going to sit on your shoulder. And again, there may be a bit of accusation that He makes against the people. But that's really not His primary goal. Primary goal is, i gotta, I got to separate you from God. I got to divide you from God. And this is going to be the means by which I try to do that. I, I'm going to get you detached from the church. And, and I'm going to make it about the people. And I'm going to make it about the issues. And I'm going to make it about the mistakes and the humanity. But ultimately, I'm just trying to get you away from God. Because if I can get you separated from God, you're going to live the rest of your life being identified as someone that's lame. Being identified as someone that has lost everything. But if somehow you can make up your mind no matter what dumb stuff somebody does no matter how much somebody may mistreat me no matter how much somebody might actually abuse me I'm still going to hang on to him because if I can hang on to him I may have to live some years in misery I may have to go through some hard times but there's going to be a day in which I'm going to get restored to the table I'm going to be brought back to a place that I had the right Mephibosheth had the right to sit at the king's table and lost it. But look at the end of his life. He's brought back and sits at the king's table. The name Mephibosheth, and not going to explain all this, but just quickly for those of you that may not really know this, names in the Bible are usually significant in their meaning. Kids weren't just named by... The most popular boy name for the year, the most popular, it was, there was meaning in the name. The name Mephibosheth has an interesting meaning. His name means dispeller of shame. Dispeller of shame. You see at five, under the, because... His dad and grandfather's death was not for noble reasons per se. His grandfather, the king, had been living a rebellious life and God had rejected him and God had forsaken him and was going to give the kingdom to someone else. And so Jonathan, Jonathan really is one of the most amazing characters in the whole Bible. He's not one that gets a whole lot of attention, but if you want to find out what it's like to have great character. If you want to find out what it's like to be a friend to someone, read and study about Jonathan. So Jonathan finds himself in circumstances that he didn't contribute to. It weren't his fault, but he ends up losing his life. And so now here is Mephibosheth. And so really it would have been enough to live under the shadow of what Saul had done. And it would have been enough for Mephibosheth to live under the shadow of God rejecting Saul. But then you compound that with now he had been born able to walk, but now has lost the ability to walk. And so he's the son of Saul. He's Mephibosheth who is lame on his feet. David says, I want you at my table. I want you to sit at my table continually. Can I tell you something? God will never fully erase every memory of the past. 
God will never fully wipe away every reminder of the past. Because from what I understand from Scripture, Mephibosheth spent the rest of his life lame on his feet. But here's what's pretty cool to me. I don't know how he got to the table every day. I don't know if he had crawled there himself. I don't know if they had wheelchairs at that point yet or some. I, or I don't know if somebody carried him. I think there's a pretty good chance that every time he came to the king's table, he had to have some help getting there. But once he got to the table, And once, whether it was somehow by his own ability or somebody helping him, once he got pushed up to the table, now when you look around at that table, you can't see the difference between Mephibosheth and everybody else that got to the table by himself. That table covered the lame feet and made him an equal. If I could say it this way, it was the table that dispelled the shame. It was the table that hid the embarrassment of the past. God is not unrighteous. To forget your work and labor of love. I can't tell. I wish I could tell you today, but I can't. I wish I could tell you that God is just going to quickly turn everything in your life around and you're not going to have to go through difficult times and you're not going to have to go through heartache and pain. I I can't tell you that, but I can tell you if you will not let the enemy drive you away from God and the people of God, there will be a day in which God's going to bring you to the table. And no, again, everything may not be perfect in your life now, but God is going to restore some things that you've lost lost that the enemy knew at some point God's going to do this and so I've got to use this window to somehow drive them away here's what's interesting and I challenge a few of you folks that have been walking with God for decades and decades to hear this Because even after you get brought back to the table or even after you get a seat at the table doesn't mean everything is automatically going to be good from here on out. Just a couple of chapters later, in 2 Samuel 16, verse number 1, when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys and Upon them two hundred loaves of bread and hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruits and a bottle of wine. Now watch this. The king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The donkeys be for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine, and that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, Where, Where's thy master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, 
he abideth at Jerusalem. For he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all, are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord, O king. Do you get what just happened here? Because if you read on, David goes to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth says, That is not what happened. That is not what I said. And the scripture says that ultimately David believes Mephibosheth. That he wasn't waiting in Jerusalem because he was going to be made king. That, that's not what was going on at all. But that's what Ziba said because apparently Ziba was jealous of what was done from Mephibosheth. And so he finds this as his opportunity. Tell somebody something today, please. If you'll hold your peace and let the Lord fight your battle, in the end, truth will prevail. Ziba tried to get from Mephibosheth what was given to him. Ziba perhaps feeling that because of his loyalty to Saul, he deserved to have been given that, finds a way to try to get it. And once again, Mephibosheth finds himself in a pretty challenging situation. But once again, before it's all over with, God comes through and makes a way when there seems to be no way. So I wish I could tell you that at some point when you get to the table, everything is good from there on out. I can't tell you that and part of the reason is because the enemy is always, 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 always looking for something to drive a wedge between you and the body so that it will ultimately drive a wedge between you and God. How is it How do I get through that? How do I overcome that? David said in Psalm 23 and 1, most of you can quote it, The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. you got to make up your mind that for you, ultimately, it's all about the Lord. It's not about the flock. It's about the Lord. So whatever I face, the Lord is my shepherd. No matter what obstacles come my way, the Lord is my shepherd. No matter what wolves try to creep their way in and pick me off from the flock, the Lord is my shepherd. And I shall not want. I may not always be able to trust you. And you may not always be able to trust me. But can I tell you today, the Lord is a trustworthy 
shepherd. The Lord will not leave you or forsake you. You can't judge people by the Lord. You can't measure the Lord by people. You can't let the mistakes and the failures and the hypocrisy of human beings cause you to question that the Lord is my shepherd. I may not know how to navigate what I'm dealing with, but I've got a shepherd. If I can just listen to his voice above all of the chaos, above all of the confusion, above all of the turmoil, if I can just listen to his voice, he's going to navigate me through this season and he's going to bring me to a place where I'm going to lie down by green pastures and I'm going to drink from still waters and he's going to restore my soul. about you but I think I've always pretty much thought in Psalms 23 and 1 in the, or Psalms 23 in the context of the natural physical world. Yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and we think of things like disease and turmoil and trouble in our world and things that can bring physical but I think I, I, you may have already known this and seen this but it just hit me this morning or yesterday I can't remember which one but, but I think the valley of the shadow of death for you and I, there's way more to it than those physical things. The, va- the valley of the shadow of death is those things that I walk through, those weapons that the enemy has formed against me, those things the enemy has created to kill me, the things the enemy has created to destroy me. And if I will let the shepherd lead me, I can walk through the shadow of the things that were meant to destroy me, the things that the enemy was trying to use against me. If I'll just let the shepherd guide me, yes, I will walk through the shadows of those, of those things. The scripture says in Isaiah that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Sometimes I think we misread that verse. It does not say there will be no weapons formed against us. It does not say there won't be things the enemy uses against us. What it says is the weapon will not prosper. The weapon may be formed, but ultimately God will not let the weapon do what the enemy intended it to do. How is it that the weapon ultimately doesn't do what the enemy intended it to do? Because I have a shepherd that is guiding me and he is navigating me so that while I may be in the shadow of it, it can't touch me. Psalms 91 really says something similar. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It goes on in that chapter to say, a thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it won't come near you. That means there's going to be stuff that goes on around you. There's always going to be stuff going on around you. But if you can get into the secret place of the Most High, you have a protector, you have a shelter that's going to be able to keep you from the weapons of the enemy doing what the enemy ultimately intended for them to do. Last passage and I'm closing. Jesus has been to the cross. He's gone through everything that led up to the cross. He's buried, rose again. Three days have passed. He's rose again. Now there's some of the disciples and some of Jesus' followers 
that have encountered him. But there's one of those disciples who hadn't encountered him personally yet. They hadn't seen him for themselves. They've only heard the reports of others. And Thomas responds to the other disciples and he says this, Unless I see him with my own eyes, unless I see the nail prints in his hand, unless I am able to reach out and touch the wound in his side from where the spear was thrust in his side, unless that can happen, I can't believe. Unless I can see it for myself, I will not believe. And Thomas has been given a nickname, a negative nickname. That in my opinion, if you really get to the heart of Thomas, he doesn't deserve the name. And that name that was given to Thomas is Doubting Thomas. And I know, I know, I know, when Thomas eventually encounters Jesus, I know that Jesus said, blessed are those that haven't seen and believe. But all you got to do is just alter the tone of which you read that. And I think if you read it with the proper tone, that statement was not an accusation or a judgment. It was a proclamation. Blessed. Blessed are those, because more than, or the, mo, the majority are never going to get to see and touch. So, you and I are a part of that. But I don't think he was trying to put Thomas, throw Thomas under the bus with that statement. And the reason why, if you go deeper than Thomas's words, you can find out that I don't think it was just simply this hard-headed unbeliever saying, the only way I'll believe is if I see. Because if you go back to a few of the other places where Thomas is mentioned in the Bible, mentioned in the Gospels, if I'm not mistaken, it's during the time at which Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. And they're about to go there and the disciples weren't really understanding some of the things that were being said. And, and Thomas, usually it's Peter that has something to say. But this time Thomas speaks up and he says, If where you're going is a place of death, I'll go with you. If the place you're going is to die, I'm with you. 
He was sold out enough. He was committed enough to following Jesus that even if the outcomes were going to be negative, he was saying, I'll go with you. Even if we're going to our death, I'll go. So Thomas had been a very committed, dedicated believer. But here's what I think happened to Thomas. The ups and the downs of the journey. The highs and the lows of what had taken place over the last little while had gotten to the point for Thomas that he says, I need more. I need more than just you telling me you saw him. I need more than just a second-hand account that he's alive. I need to see him for myself. And another reason why I don't think Jesus' statement of blessed are those who haven't seen and believed, the reason why I don't think that was intended to be a slap in the face at Thomas is because of the way the Lord responded to Thomas when he saw him. Because when the Lord saw Thomas, he said, Thomas, here you go. Here's what you needed, Thomas. I want to willingly show you. Thomas, reach reach forth and feel that spot on my side where that spear was thrust. I believe with all of my heart that those actions on Jesus' part were absolutely, completely done out of love and compassion. I am confident, Brother Mike, that God, that Jesus wasn't looking at Thomas going, there, see? Now do you believe? There. Do you believe it now? No. I believe there's somebody in this place today. What you've been through, what you've had to deal with, the things you've gone through, you 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 want to believe. You want to believe that there's a place at the table. It's not that you don't want to believe, but you got you gotta have more than just what somebody's saying. You just gotta have more than somebody else's report. Can I tell you that the Heavenly Father is in this place today? I don't care what you've done. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care how you've let the things you've been through cause you to mess up or make wrong decisions. It doesn't matter to him. The story of the prodigal son who took his father's inheritance, completely wasted it, lost it all in just a matter of a few short days. The father was sitting there on the porch waiting watching for that son to come home. And that son, another one of those things, forgive me for just using my imagination, but he made up a speech that he was going to give the father. 
I just imagine his whole way home, he is rehearsing over and over and over. I know what I've done. I know the mistakes I've made. I know I don't deserve to be a son anymore. Just let me be a servant. I, 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 just, I, I think he just kept repeating that, not just in his mind, but out loud. In fact, I, I think he, I can imagine him kind of, you know, experimenting a little bit with the voice inflection at which place, what, how to say it. Before he ever got a chance, before he ever had the chance to open his mouth and give his speech to his father, the Bible says the father ran to him embraced him didn't have any interest in hearing his speech and immediately if I could say it in the context of Mephibosheth immediately brought him to the table head bowed eyes closed if you would please I'm going to need some of you to help me because is one of those times in which I don't think necessarily an invitation to come is the best. Somebody wants to get up and come to the altar. Obviously, I'm not going to stop that. But this is, this is to me one of those times in which it's kind of hard to make your way to the altar. I, I am going to, I'm going to do this again. Hopefully, if, again, if no other reason out of respect for those around you that your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed if you're here this morning and you're willing to acknowledge that something throughout this message some way or other God is talking to you this morning if you're willing to acknowledge that I'm going to ask you to do this I'm going to ask you just to just to slip your hands up into the air as a sign of surrender to Him today. Maybe not, really, maybe not necessarily a sign of surrender as much as a sign like a child who puts his arms up in the air toward a parent as an expression of need. I need you. I need you to pick me up. I need you to hold me. I need you to carry me. So there are times in which lifting of our hands can be surrender. But this morning not surrender as much as an expression of like a Mephibosheth I just I can't even carry myself some of you have already some are already doing that so now what I'm going to ask is those of you that maybe this message is not necessarily for you right now you don't necessarily feel the need for it right now would, would you would you let the Father use you now to minister to one of these precious folks that have their hands up one of these folks that are acknowledging that the spirit of the Lord is talking to them this morning come on there's some people in this place today the enemy is working so hard to get you separated and disconnected and the things he uses seem so logical Seems like so reasonable. He has such a way. He has such a way of rationalizing with us. You you shouldn't have to you shouldn't have gone through that. 
They shouldn't have treated you that way. They're supposed to be a Christian. They're, they're supposed to be this. They're supposed to be a leader. They're supposed to be that. Shouldn't happen. I, I hate to say it this way because I don't want to give him credit, but he, he's really good. He's really good at finding those opportunities. He's really good at trying to get you infected in the place where you're trying to get healing. He's really good at causing issues and pain in the place where you're actually trying to get healing. In the name of Jesus. I know you had other expectations. I know you had a right to think things would go differently than they've gone. And I agree. I agree with you. It shouldn't have gone this way. This isn't the future you envisioned. This isn't the outcome you expected. But like Mephibosheth, I believe God's got a day for you, and it could be today for some of you. Could be the day that He wants to bring you to the table. This could be the day that He wants to bring you to the table. Don't let the humanity of those in the body cause you to get separated from the deity of the almighty God who is perfect. Don't let the humanity and the weaknesses and the frailties of humans separate you from a God who is just and right and pure. Oh, Holy Ghost, do your work right now. Holy Ghost, do your work in this place today. God, I believe there's some Mephibosheths in this sanctuary this morning that have been through the heartache and the pain and the discouragement, the disappointment. But, oh God, don't let us miss the restoration. Don't let us miss the restoration that you want to bring in our lives. Because we allow those things to completely separate us and disconnect us, disconnect us from the body, but ultimately disconnect us from you. Oh God, don't let wounds from friendly fire cause me to forsake the body and forsake you. Help me, God, to not let wounds from friendly fire cause me to separate and isolate myself, disconnect myself. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I challenge someone today. It doesn't take but a small wound that's not properly dealt with to become a life-threatening thing. 
Some of you are walking around with stuff you're not dealing with because it just seems minor. Maybe it even seems petty. The enemy's okay with that because the enemy knows even the smallest of wounds that become infected can become life-threatening. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, you got a place at the table, you've got a place at the table, I know you've been through some difficult things, I know you've been through some mistreatment, I, I know you've been through some betrayal. Some of you have been through what could be classified as abuse, but there's a place at the table. There's a place at the table. Don't miss your place. Don't miss your place at the table. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Come on, I know this is not necessarily a time in which you can see with a physical eye, but if you tap into the Spirit, you can feel. You can feel what God is doing. You can feel how God is working. 